you should really think about what you're interested in, what you're passionate about and trying to find something that's a good fit um, because you do have the training um, and the resilience to make it work. Um, you just have to have that faith in yourself um, and throw yourself at the new challenge. Don't settle for something that you're not really interested in just because it's offering a steady salary. It's, it's really not worth it. This podcast is brought to you by Watchword Security. Watchword provide physical security services to those who own or manage property. If you need a security team that you can rely on, Watchword can help. Welcome to the Watchword podcast, reflecting on life's big decisions and the factors behind them. In this episode, I talked to Paul Mather. Paul grew up in Manchester before attending Oxford University and then joining the army. He deployed to Afghanistan before leaving the army to work at a then small company called Deliveroo. After some initial setbacks, Paul assisted Deliveroo grow from 100 delivery drivers to nearly 60,000. Paul now runs his own consultancy helping businesses plan and grow. You can get in touch with him via his website, pauldavidmather.com. Hi Paul, thanks for joining me. Uh, so. Let's go straight into it, straight into a big decision. Why did you join the army? Hi, Mark. Um, that's a big, a big question and a very interesting uh, thing to think about. It's something that I'm very often asked, actually, when um, people who don't know me find out, found out that I used to be in the army. Um, so, okay, to go back a little bit, I, I grew up in Manchester, had a pretty... Um, stable and, and normal and happy upbringing um, my parents really encouraged me to do the best that I could academically so you know, they invested a lot of time and effort and money and sending me to um, Manchester Grammar School which is um, quite a well-known grammar school in, in the northwest yeah um, and I had a good time there and I, I was very much an academic child I was a bit of a, a bookworm I wasn't very um sporting at all to be honest um throughout my school years um I focused a lot on my studies and my my interests um in adventure um so I read a lot of novels and um watched a lot of films those were the kinds of things that I was into I was very into music um, and creative things I used to write songs a lot. Um, I was a guitarist and not a very good singer, but a singer um, in a band. Um, yeah. So nothing that would necessarily suggest um, a military route um, in terms of the career I was going to take. Yeah. And in terms of my family history, you know, of course, if you go back to um, World War Two, I had grandparents who, who were involved in in that conflict and, and certainly in world war one before that but nothing in the interim period so no immediate family history in the military um so i'd never really considered it the only connection that i had to the military at that point was um my my grandma my dad's mum, um had a good friend at the time who was a recruiting sergeant for the royal marines 
Um, yeah. This was when I was um, pretty young, you know, between the ages of, of maybe six or eight and, and kind of mid-teens. I, I would sometimes um, get War Marines T-shirts and caps and things like that um, from my grandma, um, from this guy. Um, so that was the only real connection I had with the military at all. And I quite liked war films and um, war stories and things like that. That was interesting. But I never really thought seriously, I don't think, about doing that myself as a profession. Um, and then I went to university. I, I studied at Oxford. I studied French and Russian, uh, which were two subjects that I'd also studied at A-level. Um, and, and in fact, actually, prior to that, I'd studied them at GCSE level. Um, so that seemed like a natural path for me to take because I, I was good at those languages. Um, I enjoyed learning languages. I enjoyed traveling. Um, so it seemed like quite a natural route to go down. So I focused on that for three years at, at university without really thinking seriously about what I was going to do after university until my final year. Um, and then I thought, wow, it's only a year now until I um, graduate and I don't really have the faintest idea what I'm going to do next. And at the time, um, that would have been 2008, 2009. Um, as you know, the, the UK was still um, very heavily engaged in Iraq and Afghanistan in the wars there. So that was obviously something I was seeing a lot in the news. Yeah. And I had a good friend at university who started at the same time as me, but he did, um, uh, he did a shorter course. He did a three year course, which is the standard, whereas languages was a four year course. So he finished a year before me and went to Sandhurst. Um, and he came back um, a couple of times to Oxford to have drinks with us, dinners with us, that kind of thing. And hearing him talk about that really piqued my interest um, yeah. and got me seriously thinking about joining the army. Um, so it was, you know, quite a, a last minute decision, if you will. You know, I probably made the decision to do it um, within the two years running up to it. Um, and, and I guess the motivations, to come back to your question, were, in hindsight, um, twofold. I think one was the element of personal challenge. Um, mm -hmm. As I mentioned, up to this point, I, I hadn't been particularly sporty or, or adventurous. Uh, I'd really just focused on the academic side of things and enjoying myself and certain creative interests. Um, so I thought, actually, maybe I should be pushing myself out of my comfort zone, doing something that's completely unfamiliar to me that I, I might not even be good at um, to see if I can do it. And yeah. I think the other motivation was seeing what was going on in Iraq and Afghanistan at the time. I felt it sounds really corny to say it, but I, I genuinely did feel a kind of sense of duty, uh, a calling to um to sacrifice some element of my time, I suppose, um, or, or all of the privileges that I'd had um, in order to contribute to a, a kind of national 
effort um, that lots of men and women from all walks of society, from working class right up to the upper classes, were contributing to by joining the armed forces and, and other associated organizations. So I think um, that that was really yeah, a sense of wanting to push myself and a, and a sense of duty were probably the two reasons that I decided to join the army. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, um, it kind of uh, resonates in terms of what's going on at the moment um, across the country, really, with coronavirus. And you're talking about the uh, the sort of shared effort and um, and sense of duty across different groups, different classes, different people. It's it's interesting what um, what the, a, a crisis, I guess, um, a cr- crisis and war have some similarities so it's um it is interesting to see uh, to see what's going on at the moment and then like you say that reflection just made me think of that um so yeah that's that's interesting that's good a very thorough explanation um and uh yeah, i guess it's slightly unusual to to make that decision at the last you know almost at the last minute um with with limited military backgrounds but i get you know you just you were de- you, de- you were decisive and um did you not consider going into the city and, you know, get, you know, or training to be um, using your language de- degree, for example? So I had a bit of a um, bit of a flirtation, I suppose, with the idea of becoming a lawyer at one point. But that was before yeah. my university time. That was when I was still at um, grammar school. Um, and actually, that was that was due to a family connection. A good friend of my parents, who I'd known my whole life, um, is a barrister. He was originally a solicitor, and then he retrained to become a barrister fairly late on. Mm. Um, and talking to him about his experiences, um, and actually having spent um, a week shadowing um, barristers at his chambers, um, I found fascinating. Um, so I thought about that for a period of time, but then. I reconsidered and, and decided that it, it didn't quite suit me. Um, but in terms of other traditional careers, uh, banking, consulting, accountancy, any of those kinds of um, paths, and I don't think I ever seriously considered those, to be honest. I, I was always looking for something a bit different. Um, yeah. Even languages, you know, I really enjoyed studying languages. I studied French and, and Russian. Um, but did I want to be an interpreter or a translator and use them in a, in a direct way? Not, not really. No, I, I, I actually did an internship um, at a translation bureau in in Paris. Um, that was during my third year at uni, which was a year abroad. Um, and you know, I met some some really interesting people. I, I learned a lot more about how to use languages in an applied sense in a commercial in the commercial world but um doing that as a job just for whatever reason didn't appeal to me i I was look i was always looking for something a bit more um and i think what really was the clincher in terms of joining the army was the idea that you have all these people as i mentioned from different backgrounds different walks of life some very privileged some very disadvantaged men and women a whole mix of ethnicities even people from overseas from the commonwealth etc um, all united around one singular objective. Yeah. Um, 
and doing that for the greater good, I suppose, for want of a better word. Um, yeah. Sacrificing their own interests and their own time to do something for the country as a whole. Yeah. Um, I, I really saw a lot of value in that. Yeah. Um, unifying purpose is is um, the sort of term that comes to mind. Uh, and exactly. um, I think even um, I would say reflecting back on on having been in the military, but yeah. Um, but when I was in the process of joining, my, my own thought process at that time wasn't um, wasn't that um, insightful, I guess. But when you look back, it's like that's that's what the military achieves uh, in abundance is a unifying purpose and um, and therefore a greater level of team cohesion. I think in lots of in lots of cases. Um, yeah, I agree. So, and I think in this climate. You know, you briefly mentioned the, the current circumstances with the um, coronavirus pandemic ongoing. Um, you really start to see how powerful it can be when countries, when humanity is united around um, a singular objective, how much can actually be achieved in, in such a short space of time. Because generally society... Has, has never been more individualistic yeah um, and when something happens that forces people to consider um the the greater good the collective benefit um the utilitarian take a utilitarian view on things it, it radically changes uh, what can be achieved yeah um without without a shadow of a doubt yeah um without getting into a, a discussion about the merits of capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. Um, but there we go. It's going to be interesting to see how things um, progress. It's obviously a rapidly changing situation. Um, Absolutely. So, so, so off you went to Sandhurst and um, we actually coincidentally went to Sandhurst at the same time. We knew each other um but not but not well we were in the same company weren't we but different platoons correct and and i think if if i remember correctly did we both do kayaking or canoeing as a sport at one point possibly yeah that sounds like we were trying to get some time off <laughs> <laughs> well we had sports afternoons didn't we yeah yeah and yeah, uh, makes... a lot of people would do things like football or rugby um, but as I said, because I hadn't really done those things seriously yeah. at school, I, I tended to pick something a bit more off the wall. So um, <laughs> I ended up doing uh, kayaking at one point, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think I do remember that. Um, I th I'd had shoulder problems, so I couldn't uh, like shoulder surgeries. So I had to sort of manage that through through Sandhurst. And I, I thought I'd go for something a bit more, um, I don't know, relaxed, should we say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a bit of downtime at, at, at Santos rather than, um, um, you know, going playing rugby or whatever is, um, is welcome. So aside, aside from kayaking, which is probably the easiest thing that the easiest thing that you do, um, whilst you're there, um, how did you find it? Did you enjoy it? I did. I did. Um, I mean, I, I guess the military term, um, we would use is shock of capture. I definitely experienced shock of capture when I arrived, which which is intended. Um, 
they, they want you to feel like that to some extent um, because that's the point at which, you know, they really start to train you into that military um, way of thinking. Um, and, and as I said, having not had any um, immediate relatives um, who'd been, who'd served in the military, um, I was reliant really on, on what I'd heard from this friend of mine from university. Um, so I knew a little bit about what to expect, but the, the reality, um, the reality is never quite what you had expected, um, as with most things. Um, so yeah, I found it intimidating to begin with. Um, I was very conscious of the fact that I felt like I was out of my comfort zone and um obviously i wanted to perform i wanted to do well i wanted to prove myself um but i also had this fear of not being good enough you know that this kind of imposter syndrome should i really be here should i really have made it through this selection process Um, do i have what it takes um so it was mixed emotions but i think once I settled down into it, um, I did really start to enjoy it. I loved the the structure and, and the rigor with which everything was done. Um, I loved the fact that I learned so much about so many different things from academic studies about military history to how to shoot, which I'd never done before, mm. um, to doing all kinds of interesting physical and, and military tactical training that was also pretty much completely unfamiliar to me i mean i after i decided to apply to the army i signed up um for the officer training corps the otc at oxford but because it was so late on i i only had time to do a handful i think i did one or two weekend exercises and that was it so that was the only exposure i'd had to uh, military style training before i arrived at center yeah um but I loved it. And, and looking back, actually, um, it was one of the most purposeful and fulfilling years of, of my life. And, and the bonds that I made with the people that I trained with um, were, were so strong um, because we were all working towards the same goal. And I think what compounded that benefit even more was the fact that we all knew um that pretty much without exception we were going to end up deploying to afghanistan shortly after we um shortly after we passed out and completed training um so i think even more so we took it seriously for that reason and and it really bonded us and and helped us to, to push ourselves and each other well beyond the limits that we thought we had yeah so, um, so at what point did you decide that you wanted to join the infantry and, and join the Fusiliers? I think it was relatively early on, to be honest. Um, partly because the uni friend that I had, um, was in, was in the rifles, which is an infantry unit. Um, and he talked about his experience. Um, and I found that really interesting and i liked the idea of doing something um that would push me even more um 
physically and, and mentally. Um, and also, I didn't really have any particular desire to do something specialist. Um, so I didn't have a technical background in terms of my academic qualifications. So I, I wasn't particularly interested in being an engineer or a medic or, or anything like that. And infantry is more or less, a, I mean, it's a specialist role on the one hand, but it's a generalist role in the other hand, is in that your focus is very much on leadership and management and operations, not um, necessarily technical skill um, in the traditional sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way of summarizing it. But yeah, that sounds, um, you, you know, your priority is soldiering, isn't it? Essentially. Exactly. Um, which is the which is the training um, that dominates your year at Sandhurst. Um, yeah. The idea yeah. that everyone is a soldier first uh, um, and yeah. then you build the specialist skills on top of that. Yeah. I think um, I, I, reflecting, sort of looking back, like Sandhurst is a, is a fascinating, uh, well, process, I guess. This idea that you take a group of people from a, from a diverse range of backgrounds, um, relatively diverse, and then put them through a year's worth of training and obviously they have they have a strategy we they know they know what someone is like on day one they know what the end product they're looking to 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 produce or achieve is and they've developed a a syllabus accordingly that's sort of broken down into three terms and um it's just it's a very interesting organization and a very effective training establishment isn't it i would i would say yeah i i absolutely agree with that it's um it's really quite an incredible institution and, and and when you're going through that process you have you have the kind of gripes um that that anyone has when they're going through a rigorous process um you question whether some of the methods are really necessary you know whether they need to be quite so harsh or quite so authoritarian um, or quite so particular about the way that they do certain things but mm. looking back on it uh, it wouldn't work if that rigor and that perfectionism weren't built systemically because you need everyone to come out of the other end with a uniform set of skills and attributes to make them ready to serve as an army officer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so from there, as, as, as an infantry, you went on to the, um, platoon commander's battle course, um, in Brecon. And yep. did you, did, more, more of the same? Do you continue to enjoy it? F found it a steep learning curve? Um, how, how did you find that period? Um, I would say, I would say I struggled. I would say that I found it really tough. I had done, I think, across the board pretty well at, at Sandhurst. I, I wouldn't say that I was um, exceptional by any means, um, but I think I'd um, given it my given it my best, and I got a good result um, yeah. across all of the different um, things that you're assessed on, from the physical stuff through to the academic stuff. I wasn't standout good at anything in particular, but I was good enough at everything. Um, Brecon was really quite tough, I think, because it was a, a very different way of training um in some ways um in some ways it was less particular i mean it, it was 
I mean, it's it's very much more about tactical uh, infantry training than it is um, about the things that you might traditionally associate with military training. So you don't have any of the drill. Um, they're not obsessive about the way that you clean things and the way that your uniform is pressed and things like that. That's not really important. What's important is the way that you operate in the field. Um, yeah. And it's just a really tough course. Um, I mean, I I made it through, um, but I, it, it probably wasn't, you know, I'll, I'll happily admit it probably wasn't the most enjoyable period of my <laughs> life um, <laughs> or of my military career. Um, there was a lot of time spent uh, looking internally and questioning, you know, have I really got what it takes to to do this, to be an infantry officer? Um, but actually, I think that helped to build my character and develop my character a lot and make me more resilient. Yeah. Um, and I learned, I learned a lot about myself that I wouldn't have learned if I hadn't done it. Um, so I'm glad that I did it. Absolutely. It was, it was a real grind at the time, although there were some aspects that I really enjoyed. And of course I made some, some brilliant friends and I learned an awful lot. Um, but it was probably one of the toughest things that I've done, if not the toughest thing that I've done in my life. Wow. So would you, if you were reflecting on, um, Sandhurst as one, uh, block of training and then Brecon as the other, which which do you think you took more out of as a as a person that's a really good question um i think i think the course in brecon to be honest because i think it really tested my nettle in a way that it had never been tested before and yeah might, might not ever be tested again i don't know it depends how hard it push myself going forward with different endeavors but um it was um a very steep learning curve and it prepared me very well which i guess if you consider that that's one of the objectives of the course it it was brilliant for that it prepared me very well for dealing with adversity yeah um because when you've got used to um doing the kinds of things you have to do on that course, um, I think you feel a lot more comfortable coming out of the other end with dealing with tough situations. Um, and of course, not very long after that, only a year after I uh, finished the Brecon course, I, I ended up deploying to Afghanistan as a platoon commander. Um, yeah. And I felt that I'd been very well prepared for that by the experiences that I'd had. So yeah, so you you moved on from um, from Brecon, um, joined your joined your battalion, and then prepared to deploy on on Herrick 18. How did you how did you find that? Yeah, process? exactly. Um, yeah, it was interesting. So um, to begin with, um, when I arrived at the battalion, we were doing conventional training. So I should say that. Um, I, I joined 1st Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, which was and still is an armoured infantry regiment working with warrior vehicles. For yeah. those of you that aren't familiar, a warrior vehicle, um, in layman's terms, is basically a, a small 
tank um, that carries troops in the back. Um, so essentially, if you think about a traditional army um, fighting back the Russians coming over the plains of Germany, um, you would have the tanks going first um, to face off the enemy's tanks. And, and then the next wave would be the armored infantry. Um, and the armored infantry vehicles are equipped such that you can take out small enemy vehicles. So you have a turret with a, a cannon and a, and a machine gun. Um, and then you have troops in the back who can jump out and engage with enemy infantry. Um, so it's kind of like a hybrid um, role. Um, so we were training to do that. We were training in the UK uh, on Salisbury Plain, uh, down in the southwest of England, um, and then in Canada um, on the prairies of Alberta. Um, and then when we started to train more specifically for Afghanistan, um, actually, I was going to originally be as part of an, uh, a light roll infantry company. So we were going to be on foot predominantly patrolling in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, but then there was actually a change to the, the all bat, as we would call it, the, the order of battle. Um, and the company that I had trained with was cut from the all bat quite late on. Um, so they actually came this point where I'd done all this training. I've been to Sandhurst. I've been to Brecon. I trained in the UK. I trained in Canada. Um, and a few months before we were due to deploy, I was told, actually, you're not going to be going anymore. Um, you're now uh, a BCR, as they call it, a battlefield wow. um, casualty reserve replacement. Um, so, yeah, that was a, a real shock to the system. It was very, very depressing, actually, to know that I'd done all of this and, and I might no longer get the opportunity to go. Yeah. And a lot of people would think that's very strange to say. They would say, I'm, I'm talking about civilians looking at this they would say you know we're not relieved that you, you didn't have to go to a war zone um but actually when you've done all of that training and preparation you're really very much in the mindset that you want to go out there and, and do your job and I sh i'm sure you can empathize with that yeah i mean um it's it's the purpose of um of all of the training that you did so you, you were mentally preparing for it all of that time and um like you said when you were considering why you joined the military um there's an extent to which you you're looking to be tested um and that is the theater in which you were training to be tested so the 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 idea of not of not going um would be difficult to take i think definitely for for a young young enthusiastic um officer or soldier a anyone really i think yeah and and it wasn't just me obviously a lot of us were were devastated that we might not get the opportunity to go um, mm. and put into practice what we prepared so long and hard for. Um, but luckily, um, I did end up having to replace someone. And, and thankfully, it wasn't because they were injured. Um, it was simply because one of the other um, platoon commanders from my battalion had to go on a posting to a training establishment right. um, to help to train young soldiers. Um, and they couldn't delay that until the end of the operational tour. So halfway through his tour, he got sent home and I got sent out to replace him. So I ended up doing three months um, in Afghanistan um, on Herrick 18. Yeah. Uh, actually, as an armoured infantry platoon commander, because I joined a different company. Okay. Um, so you so were back to the armoured vehicles, but in a completely different role to what I'd 
trained um, for in armored vehicles. So, how did you find how did you find the tour? What were the um, what were the you know the good bits, the challenging bits? The tour I, I loved actually. Um, we were we were very fortunate in in that we didn't take any casualties. Um, we had the advantage that we were operating in armored vehicles, so at at, at a time when um, rules of engagement were increasingly being restricted and um, senior commanders were trying to limit the amount of patrols that were being done on the ground. Um, the armoured infantry units were the last ones really that, that were allowed freedom of manoeuvre um, to a large extent, um, other than I suppose the special forces who, who would, would continue to operate regardless. Um, but we were patrolling on Sometimes a daily basis, but at least, you know, two or three times a week. Um, and sometimes we were going out and staying overnight, um, out in the desert. Um, yeah. And the experiences were really interesting. You know, we were doing really meaningful stuff. We were, um, we're engaging with the local population, trying to make them feel reassured, trying to act as a, as a deterrent to insurgents who were obviously trying to do harm to, to us and to the the local Afghan troops, um, but also they would often try and intimidate the local population. So by us patrolling around in these armored vehicles, um, I like to think that we dissuaded them from doing a lot, of, a lot of things they would otherwise have done, because obviously they were more often than not on foot, um, usually using relatively small arms like um, AK-47 assault rifles and things like that. So they were absolutely no match uh, for the firepower and the protection we had. Yeah. Um, and to illustrate that, um, throughout the six-month tour, the company that I de- deployed with struck, I think, at least six IEDs, improvised yeah. explosive devices, uh, so mm-hmm. homemade bombs, basically, um, <laughs> with our vehicles, and, and we didn't take a single serious casualty. Wow. That's great. Which I mean, is good. Which obviously not... puts a, a much more positive spin on my experience of, of that tour than might otherwise have been the case. Yeah. Yeah. So um so you returned from from Eric eighteen in um well, did you do the first three months or the second three months? I did the second three months and it was a, a summer tour, so I returned home coming into it was you know autumn time uh 2013 yeah so you so you returned home and um and then you moved on to uh to be the the second in command of the of that company is that right exactly yeah so i um rather than going back to the company that i was originally with i I stuck with that company um and i became the, the company 2ic um so company second in command, what you basically do is manage the um, deployments and the training and the development um, that the company does. And a company um, in an armored infantry unit is about, about 120, 130 officers and soldiers. Um, and obviously you've got your vehicles to consider as well. Um, but when we returned um, from Afghanistan, 
we had to quickly retrain for different roles and different activities. So uh, I went from managing a platoon in a very tactical sense on the ground in a, a theater of war to sitting behind a desk and managing where those 130 or so officers and soldiers were going at any um, point in time to, to, to do different tasks and to do different training courses and different deployments. So a completely different job um, and a lot of responsibility, but certainly not as exciting as what I've been doing before. Yeah. And so was it, was it about this time that you decided that you were going to, that you were going to leave the army? Yeah. So not long after I, I got home, I, I very soon <laughs> started thinking about that. Um, and I basically saw two options. Um, for me, given my circumstances, I, I very much joined the army because I wanted to go and do interesting things, be deployed um, to theatres of war. Um, and I felt that I'd achieved that by going to Afghanistan. I felt that I'd done something good um, in some sense uh, or worthwhile. And it struck me that given what was happening, the fact that we were pulling, the government was pulling troops out of Afghanistan at that point in time, I wasn't going to get another opportunity to do that again anytime soon. Um, the path for me would have been to do a number of more desk type management roles um, before I would get that opportunity again, if I would even get that opportunity again. Yeah. Um, or to do something different and join the special forces or, or rather try to join the special forces, go for selection um, or do something completely different, like uh, transfer to the Army Air Corps to become a helicopter pilot or transfer to the Intelligence Corps to become an intelligence officer. And, and in the end, I decided on balance what was best for me at that point in time was to um, to make a break and re-enter the civilian world and try and find a, an interesting job at the cutting edge um, in a completely different sector. That's that's interesting because um, it's a big decision. I mean, the, your your decision to join the army was a big one. Uh, you had to make a decision at that point because you were about to finish university. Um, so obviously everyone has to make a decision at that point, and it's one of the biggest decisions you'll ever make. Um, really, what your what your first job is, although obviously it's not not final. Um, so to then to then decide to leave the army you've you've learned you've been on such a steep learning curve uh, you've experienced you know relatively speaking quite a lot of stuff in a short space of time um so then to decide to leave the sort of safety the comfort i think the army gives you a bit of a um identity definitely um so it's it, it, quite a big call i would say to leave to leave the army at that point yeah i i would agree and i, I thought long and hard about it um, but ultimately I had to go with my gut um, and my instinct was that it was the right thing to do for me at that point in time and there were yeah. other factors um, I'd been um, with my girlfriend now fiance um, since around the time I finished Sandhurst um, so I'd been with her for three years at that point and basically only ever spent weekends 
and the odd holiday with her. And of course, I'd missed a lot of those weekends and occasions and holidays because we'd been so busy training. Um, and then I'd been away for a month or two in Canada on a training exercise. And then I'd been away for three months in Afghanistan. So um, I'd never actually spent a meaningful amount of time with her at that point. Um, so I had to consider the fact that if I were to remain in the army, that would become increasingly difficult. Um, but ultimately that wasn't the main reason. I think we could have made that work. Um, I just decided that the direction the army was going in was not consistent with my aims. And I think looking back in hindsight, I feel vindicated in making that decision. Um, yeah. because I do know people who decided to hang on and see what the future would bring. Um, but the government has continued to reduce um, army numbers, military numbers and budgets um, and continued not, for better or worse, um, to commit troops um, to conflict. Um, so I think I probably would have ended up riding um, desk jobs that I didn't particularly enjoy for a few years before doing anything interesting. And in fact, the only people... I'm generalizing, but on the whole, the people that I know who are still in the military, who are still doing interesting things, mm. are those who opted for the special forces route. Um, mm. And they did selection and joined the likes of the SAS um, and have managed to do interesting things by by doing that. But obviously, not everyone can achieve that. Um, that's really the, the creme de la creme. Um, and you have to really be... Yeah cut out for that and completely mentally prepared mm. to do that, which, which I wasn't. And I, I don't even know that I would have what it took. Yeah. So did you, did you feel you, you've made the decision? Did you feel daunted? Was, you know, it's um, that, that departure, you've gone from the institution of university, um, a, a, a very prestigious one to then the army, um, which is all encompassing in terms of your, you know, your activity really, and then you, you're you're going to be let loose back into society. Um, did you feel daunted by that? I did. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm chuckling a little bit because the way that you described him could almost be said of someone coming out of prison. Um, <laughs> and obviously, I'm not seriously making that that comparison. Like I can't compare my experience to having been in prison, but there is an element of um, being institutionalized in in the army and i was yeah. i was wary of that i, I did think you know am i, am I going to fit in in the civilian world am i going to understand the way that people do business the way that people interact and communicate with one another because as you know in the army the way you communicate is it's very forthright um very straightforward and it's all about the mission um and there's not, until you get to, to the more senior levels in the army, there's not probably the kind of politics that you get in most offices, in most businesses in the civilian world. Yeah. Um, because everyone's very, very clear on what has to be done and that that supersedes their personal interests, um, which is, I think, very beneficial. Um, it's a very good um, principle that the army has. Um, but yeah, I did worry about that. Um, and I worried if I was going to 
I worried about losing the sense of identity um, that I had had at that point for, you know, since I decided to join the army. So you're talking about at that point, probably four years where I'd focused entirely on this goal of contributing to the greater good of the country by training to go to Afghanistan and then actually doing that. Um, so yeah, I, I was concerned that it was going to be a bit of an anti-climax leaving the army and, and doing something different and that I would struggle to find the same sense of purpose. And um, so what was your plan then? Did you have, did you have a plan? What did you have priorities? How did you approach your departure? So my priority was to do something which was at the cutting edge. That's the way that I thought about it. So I, I thought about it in terms of me having been at the cutting edge of what the military um, does, um, what the even what the public sector does potentially. Um, not to say that the army is the only important part of the public sector, but one of them. Um, so I very much thought about that when I was thinking about careers in the civilian world. So I didn't want to do something um, where I was just, you know, working my way up a corporate ladder steadily over time. I wanted to do something that would really push me, uh, test my limits and where I'd learn something completely new, um, which is what led me towards looking at the world of startups. Yeah. Um, and I came across a website um, called Escape the City. I don't know if you've ever come across that. It's basically a job site that's focused on helping people find interesting jobs to move them out of the traditional corporate world um, wow. into the startup world. Or that's how it that's how it began anyway. Um, and I thought, oh, actually, this is somewhat relevant to me, because if you think of the army as being a traditional employer, um, with a steady career path and all of the benefits and stability and security that that brings. Um, actually, I'm in a, I'm in the same boat potentially as someone who's come out of university and joined a grad scheme in a traditional corporate business and is now looking to do something a bit, bit riskier. Um, and I came across a um, company that was listing a couple of jobs, um, had a little, funky kangaroo logo um, and they were talking about delivering food um, and of course that company was Deliveroo yeah. um, and I applied for a job at Deliveroo um, it was I think the job was that I initially applied for was focused on expansion to new areas because at the time Deliveroo was only in central London mm. and I went for an interview with the CEO which was um, very different to what I was used to. Um, he turned up to interview wearing flip-flops, basketball shorts, and a, a muscle vest hmm. um, and took me to a coffee shop and we had a chat um, and he grilled me a bit on what my interest was in delivery and startups and what kind of functions I was interested in uh, working in. Um, and long story short, I didn't get that job. And... I reflected on it a bit and I thought, well, why, why did he not see the value in me doing this role? And, and basically it was because I didn't have commercial experience and it was clear to him that I didn't, you know, I, I had operational experience, mm. um, 
large amounts of it, leadership and management experience, but I didn't know how to make deals. I didn't know how to negotiate. I didn't know how to bring a business, a new business to a new area and everything that that entailed with the marketing and the business development. Um, So you you saw that as too much of a risk. Yeah. Yeah. The the nuances of running a business, it's not particularly complicated, but there is quite a lot to it, isn't there? Particularly a startup. Yeah. And and in a startup, you're also expected to do things with limited supervision and limited resources. Yeah. Um, So they don't have the kind of resources in place that they do in a big corporate to train you how to do things and supervise you and hold your hand a bit through the process. Uh, They wanted someone who they could just send to Birmingham and say, right, we're going to put you up in a travel lodge for two weeks make it happen i expect us to be launched there <laughs> after mm. that period you know um mm. and as much as i thought i could do that clearly thinking about it afterwards that was beyond my probably beyond my reasonable capabilities at that point in time um mm. so i decided to um learn a bit more about business and and the way i went about that um came about almost accidentally uh, my brother who was still up in manchester living with my parents um had become a private tutor um, and he was looking to set up business, build a website and, and start to develop that enterprise. Yeah. And, and I said, look, I'll help you. Um, I don't really know what I'm doing, um, but I'm prepared to get stuck in and put in effort and mm. learn on the fly. Um, so I ended up making the website and helping him to put together a strategy and helping him to do financial planning and projecting growth and, and those kinds of things, um, which was really valuable for me in teaching me how the world of business worked. Yeah. Yeah. And and he's he's still running that now, isn't he? He is still running that business now, uh, Tutors and Futures. Um, he, he's pivoted the business to focus on tutoring children who are homeschooled which is actually a very large market that if you've not been homeschooled you're unlikely to have come across because of course if you're not homeschooled when you go to school you don't meet kids who are homeschooled (laughs) uh, by definition um and so and and if you're not old enough to have had children who are homeschooled and you've not if you're not old enough to have had children you're not old enough to have friends who have children who might be homeschooled so you just don't you have a blind spot to that. Um, but actually, it's quite a large market, and, and he's doing very well tapping into that niche now. Um, mm. But, um, yeah, the initial experience of doing that for three months um, helped me to develop a better understanding of what was required of a civilian role in the in the world of business, in the world of startups. Mm. And then towards the end of that um three-month period um, that I decided to focus on helping my brother build this business. I saw another role advertised at delivery, which was an operations manager role, which was much better suited to the skills and experience I already had. Yeah. Um, so I applied for that. Um, I went to them and I said, look, I applied previously. I know you didn't think I was right for that role, but I'm coming back to you again. I'm very keen to get involved with what you're doing. Um, this is what I've been doing for the past three months. So I was very honest about it said, you know, I've, I've learned 
a lot a lot more about how business works um, taught myself to do various things um, and now want to come and work for you and within a couple of weeks um, and a couple of interviews I, I got that job that's a really um, great reaction to your initial failure because I mean you've up until that point you've kind of achieved everything that you set out to um, you know, Brecon was a, was a significant challenge, but you got but you got it done. And then, you know, departing the military, you, you did well to even meet the CEO of Delivery. Although I guess they were a lot smaller at that point, much wet yeah. waste. <laughs> um, but you know that setback, a lot of people would have would have written Delivery off at that point um, out of you know pride, I guess. It would you know it's a significant setback. Um, so it's a, a great reaction to. To, to that setback um you know very mature isn't it i guess at quite an early age yeah I, I i i suppose it was and um it wasn't easy to do it wasn't easy to go back to them mentally and say look i, I failed to get the job the first time around um and because there was no hiding it because there were only a handful of people who were there at the time so of course even even though i was interviewed by different people the second time around because the company had grown a little bit um i knew that they would know that i'd been interviewed previously so i had to be very open about that and Mm. and very honest but that honesty paid off and i think the lesson from that especially with regard to service leavers people leaving the military to do other things is you can't be afraid of failure um Mm. And you have to be conscious of the fact that you're moving away from a system which supports you and trains you and develops you yeah. to do everything that you need to do to one, especially if you're moving into the world of startups where you're expected to do things unsupervised, teach yourself um, how to do what you need to do, find the tools that you need to do without spending a lot of money in in many cases if you don't have much funding um and you have to be a lot more creative a lot more innovative um and just try things um and see uh, see what works and what doesn't and there's a, a lot of trial and error involved and a lot of breaking stuff before you actually get it to work um so i think that's an important lesson to take away don't be phased um if you're perhaps leaving the military and you're applying for jobs mm. um, especially if it's in an area that you don't necessarily already have the skills and experience in don't be surprised if you email people and they don't get back to you or you send in your cv you go for an interview and then you never hear from them again um, just don't be surprised if that happens and don't let it phase you um, and don't be um, don't kick yourself if, if people say no um, you just have to kind of test and adjust and try a different approach because no one's really going to hold your hand through that process. And yeah. People think, people might not understand, people who've never been in the military, people might not understand what I'm saying because they might think, well, isn't isn't the military really harsh world where if you do something wrong, people shout at you and um, try to knock you down? and yeah, there's an element of that involved in the training to try and build your resilience, but on the whole, it's an incredibly compassionate and caring organization, believe it or not. Um, 
and there are few things, um, few challenges that you can experience in the military that someone won't try and help you through, whether that's a physical challenge or a mental challenge or an emotional challenge. Like there are always people there to help you. And that is actually a large part of what officers do in the military. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we as junior officers, a large part of our responsibility was helping soldiers through crises and difficulties in their lives. Um, and for more senior officers that, that we would report to, a lot of their job was helping us to develop ourselves and, and rise to the challenges that, that we were expected to overcome. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of a lot of good points in there, and and also th- th- those senior officers they they set set the vision really and the um sort of lead lead from the front for the most part not not in all cases um but the the good ones sort of a vision of of what the regiment is about um which you know is fairly fairly predictable in a military sense it's usually um usually relates to physical fitness you know professionalism all that kind of stuff but i think you're right again we were you know we mentioned the unifying purpose of the military before and i think that 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 the environment um that unifying purpose at all different levels is is what makes it quite a, a unique and unique environment in which to work which then can be a challenge when when people leave and we hear a lot about that um but it gives you tools that like you say if you if 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 used correctly um can can be adapted and used in different environments in, in an effective manner it's a, it's it's resilience but it's a, just a slightly different type of resilience i would maybe suggest yeah i agree um you have to take what you learn in the military and adapt it to to the circumstances that you find yourself in once you leave um, it's incredibly important that you do that and you can't you can't hold people to the the principles um, and and the standards and qualities that you expect from your peers in the military because the civilian world is just very different um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing um, there's a lot of things the, the civilian organizations are better at than the military, um, like creative thinking and, and innovation, for mm. instance. Um, and of course they have completely different objectives. They, they're not funded by the government. They have to earn money. Um, and that doesn't always, um, fit with making the experience as, um, controlled and structured as you might have found in the military. Um, but you have to adapt to that. And, um, I think you shouldn't be deterred by those challenges and, and opt for something that's really safe if, if you're not going to enjoy that. Um, and th- this is something that we were discussing before, um, before the podcast briefly, um, just reflecting on the fact that a lot of, especially officers who leave the military, um, but it applies to non-commissioned officers and soldiers as well, end up going into very safe careers afterwards, um, but not really enjoying them. Um, and they perhaps join organizations that um, go out of their way to try and make the working environment as close as possible 
perhaps even in an artificial way to the environment that those people were used to working in previously in the military. Mm. Um, but actually there's something to be said for taking a bit more risk um, and thinking about really what do you enjoy? What are you passionate about? And trying to find a job um, that you'll really be able to grab, um, that you really be able to seize and, and run with um, and go a lot further than you will if you, if you choose to restrict yourself. Would, would you say that's your experience? Um, yes, I think, I think the, the military is interesting in that it gives you, there's an awful lot of structure, um, et cetera, but there's, but there's also quite a high degree of autonomy, um, a surprising degree of autonomy, the ability to be creative, um, whether you're, you know, whatever you may be doing, um, you, you, you need to be creative to solve problems. Um, whatever, whatever the situation that, that you're in, you have a particular objective. How are you going to achieve it? You have to solve the problems en route to doing it. Um, and I think that's an interesting comparison to draw to working in the world of startups as, as you did. Um, because you have that skill set. Um, but, and the decision that you're talking about is, well, that skill set is in there. And, um, most people are probably aware of it, but it almost gets overtaken by this idea of sort of structure, logic um, and institutions that it leads people to go down that path. And that's what these large institutions, you, you know, they're, they're trying to capitalize on the skills that they have and, and rightly so. Um, but you, like you like you point out, there is another way to utilize those skills in an in, in a sort of path that's less well trodden. But. The associated risks are are higher, I guess. Re yeah, relatively speaking. So it's it is interesting. So this so at this point you have just got your your job at Deliveroo, and this is in two thousand and fourteen. Yeah, late two thousand and fourteen. Yeah. Okay. And um and how many how many staff did Deliveroo have at that point? In the office, there were around 15 people, as I recall. Okay. And <laughs> driving out on the road, about 100. Okay. So and, small numbers. <laughs> but yeah, for, and just, I, I don't actually know, where did, Del Deliveroo is an Australian company, or was it started in England? Uh, it's, it's a British company. It was started in London by two Americans. <laughs> so, so no no connection whatsoever with australia other than the kangaroo logo okay and the guy wearing flip-flops yeah so yeah, was... so will the ceo yeah um and the original cto greg um mm. who's no longer with the company they were chartered friends um from the states from the east coast um Will had the idea for delivery because he he entered the world of um, investment banking um, and he was posted over to the UK, having worked in New York for a while mm. and ended up being based in Canary Wharf in London. And at the time, um, Canary Wharf wasn't at all developed like it is now. Mm. So he was finding himself working very late on deals um, being in the office, and he even had a, a corporate 
meal allowance if he was required to work late at night. Um, so that wasn't a problem paying for it. The problem was finding something decent to order. Um, he'd got used to New York, um, where I've never worked in New York, but I'm told that it's very easy to get any kind of food delivered 24 seven quickly and cheaply, basically. Um, and in Canary Wharf, he was finding himself walking to the nearest petrol station to buy a crap sandwich, you know, um, because there were, there were no options available and he had to be in the office or very close by the office. Um, so he thought, well, why is no one delivering restaurant food here? Mm. And that was the seed of delivery. Wow. Um, and then having worked in banking for a while and then moved on to, he moved on to hedge funds, was a hedge fund manager. And then he went to business school back in the States. Um, and then he decided to come back to London when he finished business school to start delivery. So he gave up the money and um, all of the, the benefits of, of working in finance um, and spent a year um, in a small sweaty room um, initially by himself and then with a handful of uh, a growing handful of people um, trying to make this business work and actually spent a lot of that time um, driving around London on a moped delivering food himself yeah um so he really pulled his sleeves up and, and got his hands very dirty trying to make that business work which is which is pretty unusual um even now if you look at the ceos or you know even the the leadership teams of the large food delivery platforms he, he's pretty much the only one who has got to this size in delivery is now a two billion dollar plus company um has managed to get to this size, but actually built the business from the ground up himself. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible. Um, so, do you know what year he started it? Uh, I want to say twenty thirteen. Wow. So, in twenty fourteen, you started as the operations manager. Um, with this sort of second operations manager, yeah. Second operations manager with, um, this freshly acquired skill set that you've got from helping your brother, um, get his, get his business up and running. And, and you stayed there for five years, which is, which is quite a Yeah. So, so I actually ended up staying there longer than I'd been in the army. I was only in the army, even including Santos, for, for four years. Yeah. Um, and and delivery, I, I I loved. I was very very fortunate to have come across them when I did, um, because I, I've looked back actually since at some of the other companies, some of the other startups that I was looking at working for at the time, mm. um, and some of them don't even exist anymore. You know, they went out of business, they ran out of money, or they couldn't make it work, mm. or They've just not gone very far. Um, but delivery has gone from a tiny, tiny business operating out of a small room to uh, a, a multi-billion dollar business with revenues of hundreds of millions operating across 13 countries. Yeah. And that driver fleet of, of 100 
or thereabouts that it was when I joined is is today something like sixty thousand. Yeah, and you, I, I mean, so you the, only the left. growth has just been tremendous. Yeah, and you only left last year. Yeah, I, I left early last year. Yeah. So um, so reflecting on that on that period then, so at, at, at Deliveroo, gr- growing it, scaling it from fifteen people in the office with a hundred drivers to where it is today, which obviously, you know, everyone knows it. Um, what, what were the key, what were the key sort of learning points and experiences that you had during that time? I think, um, I think the reason that delivery has done so well and this is something that I try to take forward now as I'm starting to build out my own business. Um, is that Will and Greg and, and the early team, but Will in particular identified a very real problem and came up with a very simple, in theory, solution to it. And the very real problem is that people need to eat three times a day um, and a lot of people who especially live in cities in developed countries these days but increasingly this applies to developing countries and people living in suburban areas and even rural areas have limited time and perhaps they have a small kitchen and perhaps they have uh, limited skill when it comes to cooking. Um, so the solution that Will came up to come up come up with is, well, we'll just deliver food from restaurants that are already making food to these people, mm. and and will effectively be the middleman. Um, and it's very clever because it benefits everyone. Yeah. It benefits the customer because it solves that problem for them, but it also benefits the restaurants because they i mean for those those of you who are listening if you don't know I'm sure you do the restaurant business is notoriously very difficult to be successful in margins are slim um it's a very fickle market um and it's very easy to go under mm. but the opportunity that delivery and other platforms bring is you can do incremental orders on top of the orders that you're already doing in-house for delivery using the same resources. So your overheads remain more or less the same, but you're able to do more orders, which immediately raises your margins and makes your business more profitable and more sustainable. So it adds a lot of value. Um, And it even allows restaurants to expand that otherwise wouldn't be able to, which in turn creates jobs, it creates economic growth. and of course, then there's the drivers, you know, those 60,000 drivers um, in 13 countries now have a, a very flexible, pretty well paid source of income. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think it's a very um, real problem when you're thinking about a business. You've got to think about a real problem to solve and a simple, elegant solution to solve it. If you're starting a business and you can't explain to someone in 10 seconds what it does, it's more than likely not going to work unless it's very 
niche and technical. That's that's what yeah. I would say. Yeah. Or you're or you're bad at explaining it. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, it could be that. <laughs> Which could be um, an, an equally big. But problem. yeah, it's it's about. Yeah. True. True. It might not be. It might be a good idea, but you might not be the right person to deliver it. Mm. Um, but I think the reason delivery has been so, so successful is because it's solving a real problem in a simple, elegant way, and the team certainly the founding team are very well suited to solve that problem so were there any points during that in that five years where you where you just felt i'm I'm out of my depth here yeah i mean pretty much from from day one (laughs) (laughs) because um uh, i came into the office on day one and obviously i had a little bit of background from, from the interviews and the research that i'd done I didn't know exactly what I was going to be doing. And at the time, certainly everything was very fly by the seat of your pants. You know, just kind of make it up as you go along um, to get things done. Um, and one of the first things that I was confronted with was the fact that they were managing the driver fleet at that time, basically using spreadsheets, Excel spreadsheets. Um, and I had next to no experience using Excel um, because it's not something you really do in the army. I'd I'd used it a little bit um, when I was a company to IC to to manage where people were at any one time, but um, I hadn't used it extensively and I certainly hadn't used it in the sophisticated way that I was now required to. So, I mean, that was one of the very first things. I basically just had to learn um, by asking other people in the office and by, googling stuff how to use excel properly yeah um and those are the kinds of challenges that you will face if you're if you're leaving the military and entering the civilian world in in a startup or if you're making a career change going into a radically different area you might be expected to do things that you've never done before without any support now if you were to join a large corporate organization as a service leader they might even send you on an excel course or something but um you're not going to get that at a startup there's no time or money for that you just have to learn it yourself probably on your own time um so yeah it was it was um it was a shock it was a completely different working culture everyone's wearing normal civilian clothes it's a startup so everything's a bit rough around the edges a bit scruffy there's not really much order or structure um and you have to kind of figure out what's going on without being able to rely on any of the doctrine or, or documentation that you would normally refer yeah. to in an organization like the army. And um, so o- over time, like what, what, what were your responsibilities like in the early days and how did they develop? In the early days, basically we were doing everything more or less manually. You know, we had software that um, facilitated the order process and directed drivers where to go to, um, which restaurants to go to, which customers to take the food to. Um, and obviously there was a way that customers could order through and out. But in terms of the behind the scenes operations, um, so working out how many drivers we actually needed at any one time to service the number of deliveries that was coming in, 
um, where to send those drivers, you know, which area of London to post them to effectively, um, at what times, on what days. We were working all that, that out manually. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, that's done by algorithms, um, machine learning. But but then that was us doing calculations using Excel spreadsheets based mm-hmm. on what happened the day before or the week before. Um so that that was what I spent most of my time doing um, and all kinds of other random stuff like walking around the streets, flyering people, driving scooters, asking if they wanted to work for us, um, going to restaurants and asking if they wanted to be on the delivery platform, going out and doing orders ourselves when things got too busy, um, answering the phones as customer service, literally every one at that point in time was doing a bit of everyone's job um, and did you so you really and, had to and did you think that it was going to succeed were you, were you confident in that to be honest we were so focused on the immediate task at hand um that i certainly wasn't really thinking about the long-term vision um will was and the execs were but I was very much focused on how how am I going to get enough drivers to South Kensington in an hour's time because we've got an unexpectedly large number of orders, for instance. Mm. Um, So it was only when things started to settle down and develop over time that I really started to get involved in the strategic direction of the company, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and, And basically the, way it works was over time as we got more funding more resources more developers um joining the company we would identify the biggest operational problems and look to automate them using software um, and increasingly sophisticated software and that would free up our time to to think more strategically about how we were going to entrench ourselves in existing markets to fight off competitors and grow market share and grow order volumes mm. and, and grow profits um, or make any profits. <laughs> yeah. um, and then how we were going to expand to different geographies. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredible journey really to go on over five years, um, particularly when you're freshly out of the, out of the military. Um, but it must've been great to get so absorbed in something that was changing so rapidly it must have been exciting it was really exciting and i think i really got caught up in the excitement and i I enjoyed the experience even though it was tough you know even though um to begin with for, for quite some time i was paid significantly less than i was in the military um and certainly didn't have all of the benefits that come with um a military compensation package like pension and um, really long holidays and all the kind of perks that you get. Um, we didn't have that um, because in a small startup, those kind of things just aren't affordable to begin with. Um, and I was living in a more expensive city. I was living in central London rather than living in like, rural Wiltshire in military economy, accommodation that's heavily subsidized. Mm. Um, so I didn't have a lot of money. I was working long hours, you know, early starts, late finishes. I was often 
required to deal with stuff on evenings and weekends, much more so than I've done in the military. Mm. Um, but I loved it. You know, I was, I was allowed a lot of, uh, freedom of thought and action. We were thinking up creative ways to solve problems. We were going out and hiring people and developing people, building teams. Um, and I think why I enjoyed it so much and what actually eased the transition, even though the environment was so radically different from the military, was the fact that we had that unifying purpose. Yeah. I think that's what made it work for me. Yeah. That's an interesting insight. I mean, if you're, you're all collectively focused enough on the goal, then you become, you know, other less important factors that might lead to friction and stuff like that fall by the wayside. Um, as, as they generally do in the military as well, because you have that singular focus, vision, goal, um, and all pursue it, um, as one. So it's interesting. I guess it was very lucky really to get to, to get into that world post, post army. Very lucky. Um, very lucky indeed. Um, almost, almost kind of fell into it. You know, I, I could well not have been sent that link to escape the city, the job site that I found the original job post through. Um, I could well have chosen not to apply for that initial job. I could well have given up on delivery when I failed to get the first job. Um, there's so many things that could have prevented me from ever joining delivery. Mm. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that it worked out as it did because I got a huge amount out of the experience and it really, that five year period was a, a real period of high growth for me on a professional and a personal level. Mm. Um, it allowed me to build on a lot of the skills that I'd been taught and, and started to develop in the military and learn a whole host of new skills that, that I never could have imagined. I would learn. Brilliant. And so at what point did you start having this idea that maybe you'd like to start your own business? Well, of course, as a startup grows, um, it inevitably becomes more corporate as, as time goes on. Um, and you have slightly less freedom of maneuver than you started out with because things have to become more structured, more consistent, more compliant. Um, you have to become a more professional organization. So, Having joined at such an early stage and still being relatively junior in the grand scheme of things, you know, before I joined Deliver, I only had four years career experience. Um, I think at some point you reach a, a growth ceiling, I suppose. Um, I was not likely to become a an executive at delivery if I'd stayed on. Um, because as, as an organization that like that grows so rapidly, um, what happens is you inevitably have to hire in very specialized, very experienced people yeah. from outside the organization to fill those roles. So you just have to accept that if you're a generalist who started in the early days and you have been doing roles that are always pushing the limits of your capability and experience, 
at some point you're going to reach a, a plateau in growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and although I was still really enjoying what I was doing, um, so I should say in the last sort of 18 months or so of my delivery journey, I started to work on, on strategic project roles. So I moved away from managing and building teams, uh, you know, at points I'd been managing fleets of tens of thousands of drivers, um, dozens and dozens of office employees. Mm. Um, and then I moved on to working on strategic programs and projects globally, working on things like insurance for, for drivers, um, electric vehicles, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit more. Um, sustainability. Um, so I was, I was starting to broaden my horizons and I thought while I'm still enjoying this, I think this is time for me to make the most of what I've learned so far um, and try something different. And I think always in the back of my mind, I've had the aspiration of running my own business and being autonomous. Um, mm. And I kind of thought to myself, well, if I don't do it soon, I'm going to find an excuse not to do it um, because I'm going to be on too comfortable a salary or I'm going to be married and settle down, maybe even have kids at some point, you know, all the kind of things that might prevent you from taking a a risky, making a risky career move. Mm -hmm. So I thought, um, now's the time. Got to, got to make a break for it. (laughs) You well, you were seeking discomfort then, really. Like you, you said then that you you were in danger of getting too comfortable, um, et cetera, et cetera. Which which is an unusual perspective. It's not that uncommon, I guess, but it's a sort of reoccurring theme when you speak to different people that in order to continue to grow, that you have to seek discomfort. You 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 said when you're comparing Sandhurst to to Brecon, where did you where did you learn the most? And it, um, about yourself and it was Brecon and it was because it was the greatest level of discomfort perhaps yeah um, physical discomfort <laughs> mental discomfort emotional discomfort yeah um, and I I, <laughs> I guess I keep on doing it you know in, in cycles um, and I, I I've, I've thought about this as well in terms of um, cycles and periods of time I, I feel like um, for whatever reason, um, after four or five years of doing something, I start to get itchy feet and I'm, I'm ready to move on to the next challenge. Mm. And I don't know if that's a phenomenon that's experienced by many other people. I don't know if there's some, some sort of reason for that, but I find that interesting. So certainly after four years of university, I was I'd, I'd loved my time at university, but I was ready to leave. After four years in the army, I'd learned a lot about myself, developed a lot, but I was ready to leave. After five years at delivery, same thing again. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of have this pattern, this rhythm of finding a new opportunity, which is a challenge, throwing everything at it, um, making it work, learning what I can and from that opportunity and, and developing as best I can and then and then moving on to the next thing, taking yeah. some of what I've learned and applying it to a quite different challenge. So what so what did you decide to do then? In um you obviously you've de- you've now departed Deliveroo 
um, in order to run your own your own business. What did you decide to start doing? So I decided um, to become a freelance business advisor and consultant. And there's a few reasons that I decided to do that. Um, one is that in, in the last year or so I was at Deliveroo, I'd started talking to um, a number of friends of mine from, from university and, and other places who were running small businesses or thinking of starting small businesses. Um, and it became apparent to me that the experience I had of leadership and management and operations from the army and business and, and more of the same leadership and management from um, delivery in a more strategic sense were, were very valuable experiences to share with those people um, because for nearly all of them, this was the first time that they were starting a business of their own um, and often they were doing it in an area that they weren't fully familiar with. Um, so I could come and act as a sounding board for their ideas, act as a sanity check for their plans and say to them, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? What if that goes wrong? What if this doesn't work out? What about that opportunity? And make them really think about the, the risks and the opportunities that were there for them in whatever market they're entering. Mm. And to begin with, I, I just offered that advice to friends for free you know we, I, I just have a chat with them every now and again and uh, let them pick my brains or listen to what ideas they had and, and give feedback um, and as I started to think about leaving delivery I thought I could turn this into a business um, so that's that's probably the main reason that I decided initially to do this business advisory stuff business consulting um, but also I wanted to take a bit of a a break from london from the uk I, I thought about for a long time living abroad obviously mm. i traveled a bit abroad when i was studying languages um lived in russia for a period lived in france for a period and my partner and i had wanted to live abroad so we decided actually to go traveling um when i left delivery and when she left her job in london um and I was very conscious of the fact that if I started out doing freelance consulting in today's world with all the te technology we have, I could do that remotely. So I could start to work even as we were traveling um, just to give us a bit more financial security. So, so that's what we did. We ended up traveling around Southeast Asia for a few months and, and then did a road trip around Europe. Um, so from April to September last year, we, we were just on the road, basically. Wow. And so, and, and where, so where do electric vehicles fit into, into this, into the story? So electric vehicles was what I was primarily responsible for in my final role at delivery, right. looking at how we could get, um, petrol moped drivers and car drivers to move towards electric vehicles and putting in place a strategic framework for that. And, building uh, strategic partnerships with suppliers um, who could sell or lease or rent those vehicles to drivers. So I built up quite a lot of knowledge about that, that area um, and quite a lot of contacts. So 
I actually ended up working for some of the businesses that I'd met while I was at delivery. Right. And so they, and you were doing that as part of your consultancy? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Advising them um, basically how to um, develop their businesses and better serve the um, food delivery market and, and the gig economy. Right. And so, um, and what's your what's your vision for your for your current activity? Does it are you a you're a freelance consultant? So it is it's it's Paul um, Mather Limited, essentially. Is that right? Or do you or pretty do much? You have, yeah. Or yeah. Paul Paul David Mather dot com. Um, I saw yeah. a few people. It sounds I, I don't know. I I sometimes think it's a bit bit vain to have a website in your own name but then i saw <laughs> a lot of freelancers were doing that simply because yeah inevitably when you talk to a potential client one of the first things that they do is they google you mm. to find your linkedin profile your facebook profile whatever so i thought well at least let's have a professional website come up when when they do that mm -hmm. um so that's the front for my business that's the the name that i'm operating under at the minute Mm -hmm. um, and it's easy to remember because it's my name. Um, <laughs> so the, the vision for my business, um, really, I think my, my grander vision is to run a business in my own right. And, and while this is a business, I consider it a business. Um, I mean, a company where I employ people and I invest capital um and I set out to do something beyond just consulting, you know, deliver a product or deliver a service. Mm. Um, that's that's what I want to do in the long term. But um, firstly, I don't quite have the idea. Secondly, mm. I, I'm not really in a position to invest the capital right now. So I see this consulting business as a really interesting way to help other people run their businesses and at the same time to learn more so that mm -hmm. when I take that step myself, um, I'm more prepared. Because although I've helped my brother to run his home education business, um, you know, I'm still a non-executive director, sit on his board and help him to manage that business. Um, Home education or even education is, is not what I would like to launch my own business in necessarily. Mm. Um, I don't quite know what it is that I want to launch my business in. So I'm going through a lot of um, exploratory thought processes at the minute. And I find that helping other people, advising other people is a really good way to learn about your own strengths and weaknesses and, and where opportunities lie yeah definitely i mean i think that's a i think that's a great strategy um because you'll you know you'll be learning a, a huge amount and not only that but you've, you've got a huge amount to offer i mean that 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 growth at delivery is is a phenomenal thing to have been part of and so any startup uh, or any business really any um, small to medium-sized business um, would would benefit from that kind of that kind of operational and growth experience. 
because uh, that growth yeah, is just I, I like mind blowing. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly seeing that um, there are things that I learn about um, food delivery and the gig economy and on-demand services and, and business in general that aren't by any means familiar to everyone who's running a small or medium-sized business. You know, we, we, we've we've spoken a lot about startups, but um, not all of the businesses that I advise and consult for are startups. Most of them are, but some of them are a bit more established, or they run. They are startups, but they're run by people who are successful business people in their own right. You know, this isn't their first rodeo, but they can still benefit from a different perspective. Someone who's had a different experience. Yeah, I think the best founders and the best executives are the people who who recognize that they, they they're the first to admit that they don't have all the answers um, and they see the value in getting different fresh perspectives on what they're doing yeah. um, because one good idea can dramatically change the course of a business in many cases yeah. particularly when it's a small and fast-moving business Without, without a doubt, um, yeah, the more, I mean, it's often talked about, isn't it? The, the greater the sort of, um, cognitive diversity in your team, like the more, the more different people you have within the team, the more effective it can be potentially. Obviously it brings challenges, but if you have, if you just get into, um, you know, the, the same sort of pattern of thinking, then you might miss opportunities. So yeah, but it takes quite a, it takes quite a, um, what's the word i don't know reflective founder or leader to be willing to to open themselves up because it's you know it's rather than saying i i have all the answers which is you know is a habit that you can get into if you're in a leadership position um, yeah yeah it's, it takes it takes some courage to do that but it's largely yeah really, you have to be courageous you have to be humble yeah um and you have to be willing to learn um from someone who has a different perspective and i think one of the biggest benefits that that i can bring to founders um and a good reason why they should consider um engaging an an independent advisor is the fact that i'm not financially or emotionally invested in the business yeah because Worrying about your income or the, 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 the impact that your business decisions are going to have on your personal financial circumstances, because they're often very closely linked for small businesses. Um, worrying about how it's impacting on your general life or relationships can, can cloud your judgment and mm. it can give you certain blind spots. And I can take a step back and say, look, I'm telling you. If you think about this from an objective perspective, you're making the wrong decision here. And I can be very honest about that because it doesn't personally affect me. Mm. Um, and I can steer them away from a, a decision that's going to do their business harm and steer them towards a decision that's going to bring benefit to their business, even if it might require a, a short-term sacrifice like an additional financial investment, for instance. 
Yeah. That's great. Um, and so when, when we were talking about the, uh, the, the preparation for this um, podcast and I said, do, do you have any aims in terms of what, what you wanted to achieve? Can you, I don't want to, I don't want to misquote you if you can remember what you said. Um, do you remember what you said? Yeah, I think if I have, if I have one aim for this podcast, one takeaway for people that are listening, um, and this is particularly directed at service leavers or, or people thinking of leaving the military. It's that I want to promote and encourage the idea that service leavers can be entrepreneurial, that you do have the opportunity to do something different. Uh, you don't have to seek a career in a uh, traditional company. You don't have to only apply for um, schemes aimed at military leavers. Um, you, you should really think about what you're interested in, what you're passionate about, and trying to find something that's a good fit. Um, because you do have the training um, and the resilience to make it work. Um, you just have to have that faith in yourself um, and throw yourself at the new challenge. Don't settle for something that you're not really interested in just because it's offering a steady salary. It's, it's really not worth it. That's great. And um, yeah, when we had, when we had that conversation in advance and you, and you gave that description, it, it, the reason it resonated with me, apart from the obvious reasons of having been in that position <clears throat> is that this, that that's actually the aim of, of this podcast, but it's not just for military people because the same, the same sentiment can apply to, to anyone. The decisions that everyone has to make from a career perspective, whether you're leaving school, whether you're looking at your um, A-level options, whether you're selecting your degree, leaving university, and then multiple times throughout your career, you have to make these assessments about what it is that you want to do. Um, and the number of factors that, that contribute to those decisions is, is massive. And obviously the consequences are pretty considerable in terms of the, the impact. So um, yeah, I just thought it was a great answer when I said it, have you got any aims um, from the podcast? It kind of surprised me and there's a real alignment there because that's, that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to reflect on people's journeys and their decisions and the factors behind them so that other people can, uh, can perhaps make better decisions when they, when the opportunity arises. So that's great. Um, and I think that's a really good note to finish on, Paul, unless you've got anything else. I mean, your website is pauldavidmather.com. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and any other ways if, if people wanted to reach out and get in touch with you? Um, or is the website the best the best bet? Yeah, you can contact me through my website. There's a contact form on there. Um, there's also a link to my LinkedIn profile. Um, and I respond to LinkedIn messages on a daily basis. So if, if, if you've listened to this and you've enjoyed it and you want my advice on anything, it doesn't necessarily have to be in a professional capacity. Um, I very often offer advice to people on personal career choices and things like that free of charge. Um, please just reach out to me. Um, I'm always more than happy to help and point people in the right direction because 
I've benefited from people being helpful and open in the past. You know, when I've reached out to them, they've given me good advice on things. So I want to pass that on to others. That's brilliant. That's great. Paul, thanks very much for your time. Um, really appreciate it and uh, hope everything continues to go well and uh, and let's catch up again soon yeah thanks a lot Mark it's been a pleasure to talk to you all the best